0: I was the guy, Um, and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that I fell into that, and I became proficient at it, Um, but we met Wayne Passell, who was the CEO of HSUS at the time.
1: That's like meeting Osama bin Laden for my crowd. (laughs) I'll just tell you right now. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get him! Get yeah. yeah,
2: good boy, good boy
1: Ranger. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. What you are about to hear is a story that has never been told to the hunting public. This story is not sensationalized. It's not hyperbolic. It is just true and actual recounts from a person who is a former employee of one of the world's most recognizable animal rights organizations. Yes, that's what I said, an animal rights organization, and I'm going to introduce you to my new friend, John Bolan. and I did say new friend, and I think when you listen to this story, you are going to recognize that he is your friend as well. This is an amazing story about a man who dedicated his life to law enforcement, and upon Retiring from his law enforcement career, he took a job with an animal rights organization. Unawares to some extent, but also um, because he thought he was on the side of justice and the right thing. John Boland sat in executive meetings with the executive staff of, a, of an anti anti-hunting animal rights organization. And I know this story has never been told because John's never told it. And there has never been a person that has escaped the animal rights movement from the level that he was at and was able to talk about it. And you're going to hear about that. You're going to hear things about Emails and plans and logistics and all, you know, non disclosure agreements and graft and corruption and downright dishonesty and lying and misrepresentation of the facts, all to push an agenda that is there for no other reason than to strip you of your freedoms. And John has come out after working for this organization and made it his life's mission to make the public aware agricultural public hunting public he wants everyone to be aware of what is actually going on in the animal rights movement and he's got emails he's got he's got documentation to back up every claim that he has. He's a law enforcement officer. He's an, I mean, this guy's a high-level investigator. He knows how to document facts. He knows how to preserve those for evidence and things like that. And he kept this stuff for his own protection. And now he is sharing his story and telling the dirty secrets behind the animal rights movement. And he wants to share that story with us. We as houndsmen, the most vulnerable segment of the hunting community, because he wants us to know what we are up against. You are absolutely going to want to stick around and listen to this episode all the way to the end. He has got a great message for us as houndsmen. He's, this is a farm kid that grew up in Indiana. When I was at his house, he's gotten meat chickens. He, he was smoking uh, fresh bacon and and uh, rib roast in a homemade smoker. This guy lives close to the land, I'm telling you, and he's, he's well-grounded. But his oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, his oath as a law enforcement officer, to serve and protect has no expiration date. And when he saw the corruption, he got out. And he is here to share his story with us. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Mr. John Bolin. Well, Houndsman XP fans, we have got a first for the Houndsman XP. I think it's probably going to be a first for the the hunting community overall and uh i'm with john bolan and the reason you need to know that name is because john is a guy that can talk to you about the animal rights movement at a level that has never been exposed to the hunting community and uh john i appreciate we're, we're actually sitting at your home you gave me a tour here and uh want, so welcome the houndsman xp podcast john
0: thank you i appreciate it i'm looking forward to it
1: yeah yeah, well, man, you got an interesting story, and uh, I think it's going to blow people's socks off when they actually hear... No no pressure or anything. <laughs> it, we'll just talk like we talked on the phone. It blew my socks off when yeah. I heard it. Uh, but we kind of share a real similar background. Mm-hmm. And uh, former Indiana law enforcement officer, just walk us through your law enforcement career.
0: Um, yeah, all I- right. I always like to say that I had a very rewarding career in law enforcement. I was blessed really. Um, I didn't, I never thought about going into law enforcement when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, it was not something that, uh, I had ever even imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it, that's the direction that my life went. And in 1989, I started my law enforcement career uh, right out of high school. Really? It, mm-hmm,
1: yeah. What did you do in the law enforcement community at 18 years old?
0: Uh, I was 19 okay. when when they hired me. Morgan County Sheriff's Department hired me. So you I got sc- held
1: back a year. <laughs>
0: You're kind of slow. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't go right out of high school. Come on. Give. I, I graduated in 1988, and then. Uh, had a, a couple little part-time jobs but then ended up in in the world of law enforcement um i went and applied at the morgan county sheriff's department at the time they were at 110 west washington street yeah. in martinsville and it was the old brick jail that had been there since the 1800s uh which i'm i'm extremely blessed that it i was hired in while they were still in that old building uh the the, the old jail building it's now under it's a historic register building and it's uh i think it's been converted into apartments but they weren't allowed to do any like major alterations of the building so it's still there
1: so the as, like people's apartments door crossbar ho- it really is the crossbar it, hotel there, now.
0: there may be some i haven't been in it since they did that but i think there are still some some of those obvious remnants of the jail the, wow. the bars yeah yeah But anyway, I started there in 1989. Uh, The sheriff at the time, his name was Charlie Beaver. Um, I went in there and and applied for a job as a part-time dispatcher and what they called back then, they called them turnkeys or jailers. Yeah. And I applied for the job and he said, I'm going to give you a chance. I've never hired anybody um, under 21 years of age, but I'm going to give you a shot, give you an opportunity and come to work. Mm Mm-hmm. And I went to work there and and it was literally like Mayberry because we had the dispatch center and and you and I understand this we've seen the big modern dispatch centers the 911 centers right but and a lot of your listeners um, have a visual of I, I have to draw that distinction because the, they'll visualize the crime shows today in the big dispatch centers where mm-hmm. all the, the everything's buzzing in there everybody's busy the phones are ringing and all that that's the modern day version but then if you say Mayberry then they get that picture immediately (laughs) and it really was a lot like that yeah because we had when I was dispatching we had the 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 mic that you had to push down on the bottom of the mic and transmit and the window where I sat it was literally like the size of a closet and there Mm -hmm. was a plexiglass window that faced the front steps of of the jail, the building, and the public could come straight in and and talk to me through that plexiglass. So
1: you were a dispatcher and a receptionist. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, all, all of the above. And and um, if if there was somebody that sometimes it depended on what shift you worked. If if a deputy brought in or anybody brought in an inmate, you might have to say you might have to tell the guys on the street to stand by unless it's an emergency because you had to go back and book somebody in. Yeah, I mean it was that that way, and
1: and um, Switzerland County was similar, uh, real yeah. similar. So people could actually just walk in, go right to the counter. There wasn't even a window, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, so similar. Dispatch just sitting right there. They didn't even have an intercom and a buzzer for the front door until probably nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, just open to the public. Yeah, it, you just it walk was a,
1: in. You could have came in mm-hmm. and broke anybody else, right? You know that you wanted to.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it times have changed an awful lot since yeah. then, and yeah. and but I was, uh, there was some what I call the old school cops still there, guys that hired in uh, pre Tennessee versus Garner. Oh, okay. And, and we could get into that, you know.
1: More yeah this that, this is a hound hound hunting podcast. Yeah, so we this we'll not do a, a, we'll ugly. do a law enforcement <laughs> training podcast here in a few minutes. <laughs>
0: So anyway, that's that's the long version of my beginnings. Um and it sounds like somebody just pulled up in my driveway. I have no idea who that is, but I guess we'll see. Um and I went I worked there for eight years at the Sheriff's Department. I worked my way up into a full time position. They moved from the old jail into the new jail mm-hmm. in um I believe it was ninety one or ninety two. And I became full time dispatcher and then in 94 i was hired as a merit deputy Mm -hmm. and went to the law enforcement academy class 94 117 yeah and i was at the sheriff's department like i said again for eight years and i got out of law enforcement for a while and uh you know there there wasn't enough money there to support my family i i had gotten married in in 91 and we were having kids and and the bills couldn't get paid unless i was working two jobs so i made a choice to get out of law enforcement for and i went to work for the uh, chrysler foundry in indianapolis Mm -hmm. and i did that for eight years and it's important i always i always make sure that i put this little tidbit into my when i talk about my background in law enforcement because it's again blessed and and um Fortunate that all the doors opened for me at just the right time, but I I worked at that foundry for eight years, and they moved their operations to Tijuana, Mexico, and they offered us either a transfer or a buyout, and I took the buyout. I wasn't going to leave my roots, my home, Morgan County, Indiana. You know, right? I,
1: um, and and l- let me describe Morgan County, Indiana, real quick. Yeah, mm-hmm. for our listeners. Yeah, Morgan County. It, the county seat is Martinsville. Uh, it's, what, 40 miles south of Indianapolis. That's about right, yeah. And it is largely a agricultural wooded county. Mm-hmm. Uh You know, the Bean Blossom, the Bill Monroe Music Festival is right over at Bean Blossom, just south of Morgantown. Yeah. Uh, is that in Brown County? Or? It is. That's in Brown so County. So it's just right over in Brown County. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a rich heritage here of just agriculture, hunting, fishing. Who's your, you've got the Morgan Monroe State Forest here. You've got, I mean, this is rural Midwest.
0: It really is. And you get what, what I like to describe to people that don't really know the, the geography of Indiana is the way that the, when, you, when you're up north on the lakes, it's flat land. Right when you get south of indianapolis or as we always say south of 40 right when you get south of that it turns into rolling hills and hollers. you bet and it's just like it it, it's like kentucky i mean it gets really hilly and um
1: there are good salt of the earth people live close to the land morgan county brown county uh Monroe County used to be this way, but Mm -hmm. I mean, just people, my whole family, uh, migrated here from Kentucky and settled in Brown County. And, uh, they brought those traditions with them and, Mm -hmm. and all the things that come with it. So, I mean, it's, it's rural Indiana. So you went to work at the foundry and then you Mm -hmm. got a job with the state.
0: Well, I went to the city first, Okay, Martinsville city police. I, I, I had lunch with a friend and I said, you know, the foundry closed. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm 35 years old, and the only thing I know how to do is police work and foundry work. And <laughs> right. You know, and um, he said, well, the city has a position. He said, they haven't filled. He said, you should go see if you can get a job here at the city police. How old were you? I was 35.
1: Which is a cutoff. It which is. is a crucial, yes, crucial that, age because you can't get into retirement. That's in right. The public employer retirement fund.
0: Yeah, you could, you could work for a sheriff's department. I think unless they've changed that, but
1: I,
3: you still can't. The,
0: the city police's and the state the state level jobs you had to be you couldn't be over thirty five, right? And so I I went and I talked to the chief of police and his, uh, Franz Hollanders. He and I knew him, and I knew the mayor Shannon Buskirk. I had worked with those guys um, when I was at the sheriff's department, and I left when I left sheriff's department, I left on good terms. I left and and had no burnt no bridges there, mm-hmm. and. So he said, I'll give you a shot. He said, I'd, I'd like to hire you. Right. And so I was ecstatic about it, you know, and a little bit nervous. It had been eight years since I had been in law enforcement and a lot had changed. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was driving down the highway after he told me he had hired, he would hire me and I would already gone through the the process, most of their process. And, um. He called me and and you know how cops all tease everybody, not just cops, but anybody that's close that does the same things. You know the, yeah. the brotherhood, like like your houndsmen, the the guys that hunt with with hounds. They it's I'm sure it's a very tight knit brotherhood, and you're sitting around a fire and you're poking and prodding each other and sure. harassing each other. Well, cops are the same way as you right. know. So he called. I said, hey Franz. He said, how bad do you want this job? And I just paused like that for a minute. And I started laughing. I said, "Okay, what is it? What? What are? What you're calling a mess with me? I of course I want the job,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know." And he said, "Well, do you want it bad enough to go back through the entire academy?" And really, I, yeah. And that's what I said. Uh, just exactly the same expression you just had on your face. I was like on the phone with him in my car by myself, and I'm like, are you, whatever. <laughs> He said, no, I'm dead serious, John. He said the law enforcement training board has just recently changed, uh, the rules for coming back into law enforcement. And he said, incrementally, if you were out two years, you'd have to go back and redo criminal law, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're out four years, then you ha- if you're out four years or more, you have to go back through the entire academy. And I said, well, I've gone through it once. I need the job. Right. You know, let's let's go. So you
1: went back all the way through, back th- through thirteen the, weeks of well, Indian law enforcement. Well, it
0: was a shorter version this time. Um, I forget how long it was. Now, to be honest with you, that was class uh, two thousand five one sixty five or so something you got, like that. You
1: got two different <laughs> yeah academy classes. I'm, I'm on the
0: wall at, at the Indian Law Enforcement Academy twice. Um, <laughs> and, See, I told you you well, were slow. Yeah, exactly. At <laughs> one of the um, one of the instructors. Of course, I, I knew I was going to catch hell. I knew it. I'm sitting in the class up there, and one of the instructors says, John Bowen," And I said, stand up, you know, sir, yes, sir. He says, are you a glutton for punishment, or are you just that damn dumb? <laughs> 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 I said, all right, lay it on me, whatever. Um, so anyway, I got through the academy again, you know, second time, and I uh, was working for the city of Martinsville, and I caught wind of a job through a good friend of mine, said that the Indiana Gaming Commission is Mitch Daniels, governor at the time. They had, I think it was House Bill 1510, actually, if I recall. The They had decided to create a brand new law enforcement, uh, a, a new police department. And it was going to be under the umbrella of the Gaming Commission.
1: Because we had passed casino gambling yep. in the state of indiana
0: yep the yep. um the horse tracks were lobbying at the state house for <laughs> land-based casinos on their property they were losing revenue mm-hmm. um and at before that indiana only had um what they called riverboat casinos yeah,
1: they had three okay two of them were right there one was in at the, when they first started you had the grand victoria you had Argosy, and then you have one up on the Great Lakes. There mm-hmm. were three, and then uh, another riverboat, Belterra, came in in Switzerland County, and then they put one in at Evansville. Okay, isn't
0: that right? Okay, well, that, well it sounds like you know more about the history of that than I do. <laughs> well,
1: I was living with it. <laughs> yeah. I was right there with it. Yeah, you know? that's right. And going through the whole whole thing, but so
0: part of that deal was, and I, I don't want to go on and on and on, but I, my my background and how I ended up where I am now, and what we're going to cover later is. I think it's important to understand how I got to where I was and how fortunate I was. Yeah.
1: So, because your your job with we call it IGC, Indiana mm-hmm. Gaming Commission, right? You know, your your job was to regulate all the casino gambling, but also investigate all of the illegal gambling and things that that um, falls under IGC's bailiwick.
0: It was IGC's, but there the different departments within IGC. Mm-hmm. Um, There was the folks that actually did the casino work. That wasn't my department. Um, If we ever went onto a casino property, people were getting nervous because we were there to do an internal affairs Mm -hmm. investigation. We did the internal affairs there, but we didn't work or regulate the casinos. What we were doing was going out throughout the state looking at illegal gambling. Mm -hmm. We were looking at criminal enterprises that survived off of illegal gambling in the state of Indiana. Yeah. And part of that uh, just hap- just so happened to be um, animal fighting, mm-hmm. and the animal fighting was there was a lot of gambling, illegal gambling, associated which is what with that. drew you to that's, that. That's right, that arena. It's what drew my boss, uh, Larry Rollins, to that. He we branched out from when when we first started. When our department first was created, we went after the illegal slot machines in the bars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They were really not regulated whatsoever. They were really basically robbing people, taking advantage of people that would go in there and play those machines. There was no regulation at all. Mm -hmm. So guys would go in, they'd have a few beers on Friday night, and they'd spend their entire paycheck trying to win.
1: Try to win 10 bucks
0: On these machines. (laughs)
1: Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest, from the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience.
0: And then let let me just wrap up my law enforcement career here. The... There was also a lot of... um, criminal elements that went into the casinos. There, there had been a couple of cases of some fugitives that were, um, had gone into some of the casinos and the U.S. Marshals at the time, uh, their warrants division ran by John Beeman, and I think he's still in charge of it there in Indy. Um, they had been reaching out to the Gaming Commission quite a bit, to our department specifically, for footage and stuff Mm
2: -hmm.
0: because there had a a lot of guys that were that were wanted on warrants for the the level that reached the seriousness where the u.s marshals fugitive task force would get involved these guys liked that high speed life and they would go into the casinos and they would gamble and they would do uh, different things in the casino on the casino properties and it was a good way that the marshals Figured it was a good way to do some surveillance on some of these people, and even if it wasn't the fugitive, uh, maybe their girlfriend worked at the casino, or that you know, it. They just started to get to where they really were using a lot of that information mm-hmm. in tracking fugitives, and the um, a good friend of mine worked. He was on the marshals task force, and and he had mentioned that you know you ought to the the gaming commission ought to put somebody on the task force <laughs> just full time on the Marshall's task force because there's so much of that crossing that, right. that crossover. And so they called my boss and they said, would you have someone that you could uh, task to us? Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I've got just the guy. And I was again, lucky, extremely lucky. I was sworn in as a special deputy us marshal and I was assigned to the marshals fugitive task force and I began tracking fugitives with them undercover and um you know in the without going into any kind of great detail all this all of the tools that were available to a federal law enforcement agency were available to me and um I had a um Department of Justice um, uh, security clearance mm-hmm. Department of Justice and uh, got into a lot of exciting well, exciting things there and, and I, I wrapped up my law enforcement career doing those things right um, from from a sitting on the porch of 110 <laughs> West Washington Street um, late at night, hearing that radio crackle behind my head, um, to hunting fugitives and testifying in murder trials and then, uh, sitting on federal wiretaps and, and listening to, to federal wiretaps, uh, and, um, hunting fugitives all across the state of Indiana. And I had a hell of a law enforcement career. Yeah, I did. And I I couldn't imagine that there would be anything else I would want to do.
1: Uh, so so we got we got to fast forward a little bit we got the backstory yep you know you're investigating all sorts of things hunting fugitives you know but then here's here's the big bomb Mm -hmm. here's the one that the reason you and i are sitting down and talking together more than anything else (laughs) it wasn't just to swap old cop stories and stuff like that we could do we could do several podcasts on that yeah we could um but tell us what you did once you wrapped up that law enforcement career well this is the this is the bomb this yeah, is
0: this this is the thing that really has catapulted me into a a place over the past four years that I'd never dreamed in my wildest dreams I would be um, but going back to the gaming commission and the animal fighting that I mentioned the the first case that we were involved in with animal fighting was because the humane society of United States HSUS had contacted my boss and said, Hey, we've got a guy that's involved in animal fighting. And would you be interested in investigating him based on the gambling part? Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that my department, my boss, any of us were, we didn't, have any kind of knowledge about animal fighting no background there for me whatsoever and it was something that i was going to be immersed in um on the run i mean i i was immersed in that world investigating the gambling Mm -hmm. well (laughs) the gambling part really and this is something i don't know that i've ever mentioned but I'm going to mention it here because I think it's very important and it, it, it'll it lend validity um, to the bigger picture. We never really made a gambling case off of any of these animal cases, animal fighting cases in the state of Indiana. Really? There was never a gambling case made.
1: There weren't charges? No. Nope. Charges filed? Not did for you gambling. Have the, did you have the case made? Not, or, the case was
0: made and it was a great case under the animal fighting statutes.
1: Did you, have, did you have the elements of the crime to prove gambling, and the no. prosecutor chose not to no. file? There
0: was very, very seldom. In fact, I don't recall one case that I worked, and I was the animal fighting guy. Mm-hmm. I was the guy. Um, and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that I fell into that, and I became proficient at it. Um,
1: you were a subject matter expert I within, was. within your agency. Yep,
0: I was. I was. And— um, so we got away from that, that case, that first case went all the way to the appellate court level, in the state of Indiana. And um, it was upheld. We, we won the case ultimately, even at the appellate court level. This guy was, was um, transporting, raising and transporting fighting animals outside of the country. It was a big case. It was mm-hmm. an international case. But what happened was we got to court at the state level, not the appellate court level, but at the prosecution level in um, Shelby County is where it was. And it was discovered at that time that the individual that had started this entire case from the HSUS, it was brought out during this trial by the defense that this guy had ties to the animal liberation front, ALF. 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 Which is listed as a domestic terrorist organization by the FBI. Yes. Has been for years and years and years.
1: Along with the, the Environmental Liberation Front. That's right. Elf and Elf, Alf. Elf mm-hmm. and Alf are yep. both domestic terrorist groups.
0: Yep, they are. Well, this guy, his name's John Goodwin. J, he went by J.P. Goodwin. He still works for HSUS, by the way. Um, John Goodwin. Basically, that, that was an embarrassment for us, for the department. It was an embarrassment that he that, that we didn't know that. We're the investigators. We're the law enforcement agency. We didn't even do any kind of vetting of him. Mm-hmm. We just took his word. He's the animal guy. Mm-hmm. This is a Humane Society of the United States out of D.C., for wow. God's sakes. I mean, they must be the experts, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We, we're going to take his word for it. I developed my own case. Obviously, I wasn't going to try to create probable cause based off what he or anyone else told me, regardless of who he was or whether I knew him or what level I knew him. I still made my own case. I I did an undercover investigation at this operation, and I talked to the guy, and I got to know the guy and made my own case. It was a good criminal case. Mm -hmm. But the charges weren't gambling. Related, the charges were based off the animal fighting and animal cruelty statutes in the state of Indiana. So, long story short, on that, or moving, moving on, I should say.
1: Um, see, I didn't even have to prod you. that's that, that's that body language <laughs> you know, thing. That,
0: yeah, I could see, I could see you tensing up and leaning toward me, and I was like, okay, time to time to click on forward.
1: You're a good sport.
0: So, yeah, so <laughs> um, that that case got the, the Indiana gaming commission, gaming control division. And that got, we had, we got notoriety off of that case with the animal rights people, the animal rights organizations um, started like, Oh, here's a department in, in Indiana at the state level that will go after animal fighting.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And man, we started getting phone calls and we started getting tips And we started getting inundated with animal cases, animal fighting cases. Yeah. And I was ignorant to the whole thing, the animal rights movement. I was ignorant to that. I was a cop focused on cop stuff. and
1: and, Not only that, but you grew up in Morgan County, Indiana. mm -hmm. I mean, if if PETA held a rally back in those (laughs) days down in Martinsville – it wouldn't have been good for them. They would no, <laughs> they no, would've. no, and
0: no. There would have been. I mean, who knows what some of the local. I mean, this this community and and even the way I was raised in in rural Indiana, rural Morgan County.
1: You grew up hunting, trapping, yeah, fishing. Yeah, you've we, got you've got a farm going on right here. There's yep. meat in your smoker, so let's just dispel the rumor <laughs> that you're that you're a vegan yep. or an animal oh, animal goodness. rights activist or anything like that. Yep,
0: yep. And that that's been a tough one. Um, and man, when, uh, yeah, that's a tough one to dispel when, when your audience learns where I went next. Right. That's, that's why it's tough. I wanted to, to
3: get it. in front of it. Yeah, Yep.
0: yeah. Yep. No. Th- okay. Let's go back to that. I was born and raised here on uh, this piece of land where I live now. This was a cow pasture where mm-hmm. my house and garage is sitting right now. This was a cattle pasture. And that was in nineteen in the seventies. Um, we grew up, we were a poor family. We were a big Brady bunch family and we were, we didn't have any money. My dad worked at the post office and, and we lived a very self-sufficient lifestyle.
3: Mm-hmm. We
0: raised animals, um, to butcher and eat and, and we hunted, we trapped. My dad worked so much that we didn't get a lot of firsthand, um, experience with him. Hunting and fishing and trapping, he was a busy working man. But we were so blessed to have a couple of neighbors that were just, I mean, like mountain men out of a book. These guys, Mark and Stan Gray, were brothers that they took us under their wing. And when I say us, they're all me and all my brothers and a lot of the other neighborhood kids. And we hunted and we trapped all up and down these creeks and river bottoms down here. I'm not very far from White River. Yeah. And we would trap muskrat and once in a while a beaver would yeah. get lucky enough to trap a beaver. And um we hunted rabbits, mostly small game, you know, when I was a kid, it was That's small. always here. Yeah. I mean deer rabbits hunting was and squirrels and
1: not uh, what it is today.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You and, you grew up you grew up same way yeah, I did John I yeah mean, I mean I grew up I we grew were up in the that country way it was
0: we had guns in our hands at a young age and we weren't uh, a threat to anybody right um and you know we got big old timer knives for Christmas when we were little kids right you know all that I mean that's just the way we were raised right. we were running running around out here with no shoes and. Um, No shirt on all summer long and and down in the creeks catching frogs and doing what kids did back then. But that's, yeah. So getting back to fast-forwarding, 30, 40, however many years it was, (laughs) I'm getting old. Um, We got the attention, the, the Gaming Commission, Gaming Control Division, got the attention of these animal rights groups. And I got, my boss and I both got flown to D.C., um, to receive an award at this elaborate ceremony. The Humane Society of the United States put on this elaborate ceremony, and we received the Humane Law Enforcement Award. I believe it was 2010. I still have that award somewhere packed away just because it's an important part of my history. Um, but we met Wayne Passell, who was the ceo of hsus at the time
1: it's like meeting osama bin laden for my crowd i'll <laughs> yeah. just tell you right now
0: well i have pictures just so your crowd knows i have pictures of shaking hands with this guy and, and receiving this award dakota
1: 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds we're talking about military grade kennel crates Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel. Easily fits in the back of an SUV or if you're traveling with a camper shell, it's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling. You just gotta check out their Dash series. This is a watering system and I've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years, but this system is all integrated into one unit and the way it's designed out of high-impact plastic the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it check them out Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that I can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while I'm out hunting when it's super cold I've had exterior tanks before and as soon as I go to cold climates then I've got to figure out how I'm gonna get water to my hounds and The dash takes care of that. So check out Dakota 283 at Dakota283.com. And at checkout, enter the code HXP10 and get 10% off of your order.
0: And it's part of the big scheme. It's part of the big picture of, of why these or these organizations bring law enforcement in um befriend law enforcement offer these awards this notoriety you know law enforcement has a lot of negative stuff going on all the time but this was these were happy stories Mm
3: -hmm. because
0: they involve rescuing animals Right, these poor defenseless animals you know and anytime these animal rights organizations can get law enforcement you see it all the time. You it's it a feel-good story. Yep. yep. Even
1: I mean, even when you look at you know the the animal rights crowd works very hard to put a very negative light and paint hunters with a broad brush that were bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. But even even our we care deeply about our animals. Absolutely. Whether it be a bear <laughs> we're chasing, you know, there's there's coon hunters that spend thousands of dollars a year is filling feeders to, you know, to, to help wildlife and feed wildlife. Mm -hmm. And then not to mention the partnership you have with a hound, but the HSUS and, and this other group that you went to work for, uh, spend a lot of money trying to paint us in a light that, Mm -hmm. that doesn't represent who we are.
0: Absolutely. And not, not only hunters, um, but any industry that has animals as an integral part of the industry, Mm -hmm. whether it be our food production, whether it be the rodeo industry, circuses, they've, they've basically shut circuses down. They've, they've achieved that. Right. Um,
1: before we get, before we get down that path too far, let's move forward to where you went after Indiana gaming commission, what your job was. Let's set that part
0: up. Yep. So with the HSUS and that, that, um, I I don't know this firsthand, but I understand the winds of of politics um, at the state level and the way that um, people can start getting pressured and influenced to get away from working with an organization like HSUS, especially in the state of Indiana. So I don't know this firsthand, but I believe what happened was my boss started to get pressure from – higher ups in the state of Indiana to move away from working with the humane society of the United States on these mm-hmm. cases, because it wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good. And it made, it made this, this law enforcement department, this Indiana gaming control division, IGC, it it started to give them a bad, um, it just looked like they were they were getting away from some of the values and important things that that um, the state of Indiana. They were
1: catering has, to a special interest. That
0: there you go. Thank you. Yeah. So, but we still needed the assistance, or at least we thought we did, of one of these organizations that can handle animals in a case. And let me just say this, because we haven't mentioned this in law enforcement when you seize evidence and you'll 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 get this more than anybody because your background as a conservation officer um you can seize any kind of criminal evidence and package it up put it in the evidence room and be done walk away and go your next case you can't do that with live animals right you have to be able to house those live animals and feed them and tend to them every day there has to be a vet there Mm -hmm. there has to be so when you're on an animal fighting case and you, you go into a property and you seize, um, whether it be one or two animals or hundreds in some cases, um, I saw cases and you know, this goes along with what we're getting ready to go and delve into now. But I saw cases where there were thousands of animals seized right uh, throughout the country and, so we moved away from working with the Humane Society of the United States and we chose the lesser of two evils, the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, ASPCA. The ASPCA and HSUS, although they have the same agendas, the same ultimate goal, they were at odds with each other and they were they were fighting for donor money. Whoever could put the saddest commercial on TV and and to solicit for that those donations, you know, they were the winner. It mm-hmm. was they're all donor-funded. The American Society for Prevention of Cruelty Animals and the Humane Society of the United States are fully donor-funded. They're 501c3 organizations. They are not government entities. They have zero law enforcement authority. So we started working with the ASPCA, the Gaming Commission. ASPCA would come in at a moment's notice. They would roll in with all kinds of equipment. They would fully fund housing these animals from these animal fighting cases which is a
1: big banner and a big i mean that's a problem solver for a law enforcement agency that doesn't have the facility the personnel uh you know all the logistics that go along with housing those animals and that's why it's so attractive and why it's easy to i mean because at that point you're standing here a, a police officer standing here on scene of i've got to seize this evidence what the heck am i going to do with it exactly you know exactly and then you've got oh well we're here to help you
0: that's it that's it and it's we're here to help you we're the animal experts this is what we do every day of our lives yeah we have the equipment and it's not going to cost your department or your state or your county your city a dime not going to cost you a dime in fact we'll even give you a grant
1: Let's circle let's circle back to that. Mm-hmm. Where did you go to work? That's that's <laughs> why why
0: I went to boy we're, this is a cliffhanger and we're just we're just dragging yeah. this out. I'm <laughs> I'm dragging it out. I that so the ASPCA you know I was the guy the animal fighting guy and I got to meet these guys and they were on the surface seemed like just good old boys. A lot of them were from Missouri. Um one of them was a retired highway patrolman from Missouri so he and I hit it off right away. Right. And um, they said, "Man, you need to come to work for us. You know, you're. We can pay you a lot more money than what you're making. And for for a cop, you know, you're always looking for that. Where am I going to go next? Right. I don't really. I mean, what does a retired cop do?
1: If you want to make <laughs> money, you don't make podcasts. I'll tell you that. Okay. Yep. Yeah,
0: so. Yep. Yeah. So I went to work for him. And my title at the time was Northeast Regional Investigator. And this is all available on a simple Google search. Mm -hmm. Type in John Bolin ASPCA and and you'll see where they hired me. And so they flew me to New York City. And, you know, here I am, Martinsville country boy, never been to New York City before. And um, they flew me into New York City and the ASPCA owns a huge piece of real estate in Manhattan. Right. Huge building. Their headquarters are there and I'm in awe. I mean, I'm, you know, of course I'm, I'm unarmed for the first time in a long, long time. I'm I'm in New York city. One of the places that I always, um, never dreamed I would ever go to and ne- had no desire to mm-hmm. go to. And I'm unarmed. So I'm uneasy about that. I'd been armed all my life up to that point. And, uh, I'm, I'm there for orientation and it's just, it's just totally mind numbing. And now that I, I'm talking about and thinking back about it, I probably had some second thoughts. I was like, what the hell am I doing here? This I'm out of my comfort zone here big time. Right. But it was good money and it was, I, I became the kind of the law enforcement go-to guy for the ASPCA. I became that guy that law enforcement officers throughout the country, not just my state anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, I mean, the Gaming Commission, all the guys I used to work for in the department, still they leaned on me as the animal fighting expert now at the ASPCA level. So they had a guy within the organization now that they could call at a moment's notice anytime, 24-7, and ask for information how do I type this probable cause on this? How do I, um, can you, can your department help us? Can the ASPC help us? And I, of course the answer is always yes, because right. they had an inside guy now.
1: So, so we're going to, we're going to dig down into this a little bit more. I, I kind of want to set this up why it's important that we talk to you and what, what the, what message here is relevant for Houndsman, because, um, uh, These groups have tried to uh, uh, paint hound hunting and hunting with hounds as animal fighting. And uh, that's how they try to get their traction and appeal to that emotional side. And you went to work for an organization... Uh, that is definitely in that fight and has been involved. Uh, Even our houndsmen are vulnerable to unreasonable searches and seizures, Mm -hmm. uh, things that uh, they aren't maybe well-versed in or maybe they're even bullied into submitting to this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, And you worked in those levels but you don't now. So right. so let's let's skip we'll skip the that part of the sandwich and let's go mm-hmm. to how you left and then we'll go back and talk okay. about some of the sure. parts and and why it's important cuz I think mm-hmm. this is huge.
0: Right. So I was there for a little over 3 years. Mhm. It wasn't very long into that time period that I red flags were flying up all over the place for me. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. I was seeing a lot of questionable practices with it. One of the, the biggest thing for me was just the outright disingenuous um, backbiting and their nasty attitude toward law enforcement in general. They secretly despised law enforcement, although they knew they had to have law enforcement they have to have law enforcement to come onto your property to seize anything it has to be a criminal case they mm-hmm. don't have law enforcement authority right so they become the so-called expert that's written into the probable cause affidavit for the search warrant it gives them it gives them the right as they become an agent of that law enforcement department mm-hmm. and and they're written in to the probable cause giving them authority to go onto the property just as if they were a police officer.
1: And you were helping. I was helping. You you were helping ASPCA Mm -hmm. get their foot in the door (laughs) Mm -hmm. with law enforcement to be able to enter the property.
0: They hired me to gain credibility with law enforcement. That was their sole purpose for hiring me.
1: What did they tell you, though?
0: They told me that I was being hired as an investigator, that I would investigate um, allegations of um, animal cruelty, Because on on any scale,
1: because who doesn't get you know, nobody wants to see whether it's a a bunch of poodles or it's a bunch of hounds or it's Mm -hmm. a bunch of horses. You know, we we as human beings, we don't want to see that. And we know that those types of real crimes, not not emotionally charged, not uh, hyperbolic, emotionally charged stuff. But, you know, real crimes need to be. Mm -hmm. investigated and and i think i think i can speak for houndsman uh that man i don't want somebody representing me that's that's not feeding his dogs properly not taking care of his dog i don't want that guy getting raided by the the sheriff's department and his picture being out there i'm totally against that Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. from what from our conversations what i've heard you say that's why you went to work for the aspca because you Saw that ten percent of good stuff. Uh, you want you wanted that. It was it was righteous, you know.
0: Well, that was part of it, but okay. I, won't, I won't. I won't go in. I won't try to say or create this um, persona for myself that that I was
1: a crusader for animal yeah, rights. Yeah, okay. because okay. I
0: mean, in my opinion, growing up on a farm and seeing animal husbandry firsthand. Um, you know, bulls, cattle being dehorned, um, cattle and hogs and every other animal on a farm being castrated. This is animal husbandry Mm -hmm. and it seems extremely cruel and extremely violent sometimes, but my idea of animal cruelty when I went to work for the ASPCA was, was, um, or it my, seems my,
1: it seems cruel and violent without context, right? Right. When when you're the person that is doing it and growing it, and you understand the whole lifespan of of that animal, mm-hmm. then you can you can put some context to it, and you start to understand why some of those things are done, right? And you right. Know, and it
0: was the same same way with trapping, as you well know, and your listeners well know that. Um, oftentimes, when you when you run that trap line. There's live animals there Mm -hmm. that have to be, they have to be dispatched. Right. And um, these animal rights organizations are, uh, we'll get into, you know, of course, deeper and deeper into their, their true agenda. But, but to get back on track where we were, um, I, truthfully, um, in complete transparency here, like we discussed before you even fired this recorder up. I went to work for the ASPCA because it paid really well. And I was I was going, I didn't have any idea what an animal hoarder was, what a puppy mill was, what a factory farm was. These are all their terms. This, mm-hmm. I, I even, even to say their catchphrases leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. But these are the terms that we have all come to understand or know, we think we understand, they're propaganda terms. Right. And um, so anyway, my first red flag at the ASPCA was I I went to my boss and I said, as a law enforcement officer, I'll go, I'll do two of these red flags back to back because it's the same person and she no longer works there, but she was the director of investigations at the ASPCA. Um, How she got the position, God only knows. But I said, hey. In law enforcement, if we're going to be an expert on something, we have to go through a lot of training. And and where am I going to, are you sending me to training? Because other than animal fighting cases, I don't know if the first thing about investigating any kind of animal cruelty whatsoever. I have mm-hmm. no clue. The animal control people or Humane Society, local Humane Society did all that stuff when I was a cop. We didn't do it. And um, she said, oh, we're, we're going to teach you everything you need to know right here. To me, that was the first great big red flag. I was like, oh, really? So we're we're a department or a group of self-proclaimed experts mm-hmm. that are all self-taught within this department. <laughs> that sounds like a cult to me. Right. And I, I had a problem with that. That was my first little red flag that went up that, that gave me – Um, and a, you have to understand that I had worked seven years undercover prior to taking this job, and I investigated – some pretty high level organized crime, um, people. Yeah. And I'm not talking about animal fighting, although there are some, um, there were some serious cartel connections Mm -hmm. to some of the animal fighting in the state of Indiana, but I'm talking about, uh, bookmaking sports betting, which is legal now Mm -hmm. in the state of Indiana. But, uh, when I worked there, it was not. And I investigated some I knew the investigative tactics and techniques. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And when I saw this, I, I began to have some reservations and some... I started to really pay attention from a different perspective, from that ex Like, do these
1: people really know what they're yeah. doing? Am I getting played? Yeah, exactly. Am I being used?
0: Exactly. And the next immediate red flag was my first report that I submitted to the same individual. I submitted a, a report, and, and again... Not bragging, but just lending credibility to to where we're going with this. I had submitted reports um, at every level in the justice system throughout this country. I had submitted reports at the county, city, state, and federal level. I had submitted information, probable cause, and information for indictments, federal indictments. I had submitted information to obtain... to get to the ability to have federal wiretaps on cases mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So I knew how to type a report. Right. And I knew at the end of the report that you were you were writing this report under the um, penalties of perjury.
2: Mm-hmm. At
0: the end of a report, you, could, you would say, I swear and affirm that the foregoing information is true and correct to the best of my knowledge and belief. Well, I, I submitted a report to her and it came back to me heavily edited and i had i said what's this i said i know how to write a report this isn't my report this isn't my verbiage this isn't my she said well that's how we do it and i said no that's not how we do it this is not my report And she said john you're not a cop anymore you're not a cop anymore yeah and 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 the the disrespect to law enforcement became really obvious
1: so what she was saying is
0: you're gonna do it my way yeah and i'm gonna
1: not how we write a report to satisfy our ends, our agenda our
0: Our ends that's exactly right that's exactly right and i i bristled i mean i'm i'm not the kind of guy that you're not gonna i'm not putting my name on something if it ain't mine right and i bristled and i told her i said look that's okay if that's if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to edit every one of my reports. And she edited every investigator's report. Heavily edited. Sometimes added paragraphs. Sometimes removed paragraphs. Wow. Yes. Their agenda, their propaganda, it has to fit their narrative. It has mm-hmm. to fit. Um, it wasn't, she didn't want an objective approach. She didn't want a law enforcement approach to what I observed. Mm-hmm. She wanted a clear path to their agenda to their propaganda had to fit the narrative like you said
1: integrity honesty had no bearing no on it bearing
0: no bearing whatsoever yeah and i said okay that's fine but i said from now on when i submit a report it's going to, it's going to indicate that this report was edited mm-hmm. and because i will not stand in a courtroom and raise my right hand and testify that this report is a true and accurate representation of what I witnessed, I yeah. won't do it. And I, I, I just wanted the opportunity so badly. I never had the opportunity in court where a defense attorney said, uh, "Mr. Boland, is this a, is this your?" I was wanting so badly to say, "Nope, it's not. It's not." <laughs> I wanted to expose that in a courtroom because right. then it becomes record. Yeah, it becomes a record. Then I never got the opportunity to expose it in a courtroom.
1: Why so, not? Why didn't you ever get the opportunity? I never
0: had to testify to one of these cases. That mm-hmm. um, in a courtroom, most of them pled out. These people can't fight this system. You can't when you get the ASPCA or the. I I, I shouldn't say can't fight it because there have been a few rare incidents in this country, um, even under while I was there. Uh, cases that I had a lot of heavy, heavy involvement in where people fought and won
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, civil cases against the ASPCA what, and HSUS.
1: You're not the only former employee of ASPCA. How Why aren't there other people that are coming out that have had bad experiences with they're ASPCA? Terrified.
0: They're terrified. First of all, they're bound up legally, um, and I'll get to that. But they're terrified of these organizations. You just look at the, in the hunting community specifically, um, trophy hunting, especially the ones that the dentist here a few years ago that went out, went somewhere and killed a lion. Right. He was destroyed, Mm -hmm. absolutely destroyed by these people. And it's, it's, they destroy them, their character. Mm -hmm. It's character assassination. They go after them. Um, That's one of many, many, many examples of anybody that, that wants to go out and, and, and show any kind of sense of pride in what they do, Mm -hmm. whether it be hunting or rodeo or, or raising livestock or whatever it is, any, any sense of pride or, um, any kind of advertisement that you want to do based on your animal, um, related business or hobby. Be careful when you do it, because yeah. these people are there watching. But it, to get back to your question, Mark, I am the only one, the only individual that ever worked at that level at the ASPCA. I was in the Field Investigations Response Group. They've since renamed themselves the National Field Response NFR. And they've, they've taken all of their profiles and bios off the Internet. You mm-hmm. can't see them anymore. Um, but... I was the only one at that level that when I resigned, I requested an exit interview and they denied my exit interview. And I kept copies of all this email. Um, uh, that's another thing that I started doing as an investigator. When all these red flags start going up, I started documenting everything.
1: CYA, baby. Yep. I yep.
0: documented everything. And, I did um, that
3: working
1: for the state.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. And I won't say, I won't, I won't go into detail how I documented everything, but it's documented and it's, it's, in safe places. If they ever decided they wanted to come out, they haven't said a word. They and it's been. I resigned in December of 2017, mm-hmm. and I haven't. Other than getting threats from from the former highway patrolman at two in the morning. Really, a text message. Yeah.
1: Wow. And, we, and you we, documented that, and it's in oh, a safe you better place. believe it. Yeah.
0: And in fact, I documented. I screenshotted the text and put it on Twitter. I'm not on social media anymore, but um, I put it out there for the world to see how cowardly he was and and is, still works for them. So
1: you you got out of there without signing.
0: I I got out of there, and when they they refused my exit interview, Mm -hmm. I was the only person that I knew of up to that point that was refused an exit interview. They did not want me in the HR department in New York City telling everything that I knew. They didn't want that. They blocked that exit interview. In doing that they failed to have me sign a non disclosure. What they normally their process was is you would you would resign um, even if you were fired, which I, I resigned on my own. I, I was never disciplined written up for anything. I never had any issues other mm-hmm. than they didn't like me going against the grain. I right. was a burr under their saddle for a long time. And when I resigned and they refused the exit interview, they failed that little link in the chain to protect themselves they failed to have offer me a severance package the severance package always came with the Mm non-disclosure we're going to get for example we're going to give you six months pay but you need to sign here right that you'll never disclose what you saw how we operate at this level and they didn't have me do that
1: so you're off the chain
0: i'm off the chain i'm i'm off and running And and what
1: what are you doing as far as you do quite a bit of traveling and speaking and different things on, yeah, on this issue. Just yeah, and that, that's, you travel around the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. That started in 2018, February 2018. I was very fortunate. I have I always give credit where credits due, uh, people that have helped me along the way and opened doors for me. Uh, a man by the name of Trent Loose um, has a show, several actually, but he has one called Um Rural Route Radio. Right, and it's based. It's out west. He's Central Nebraska sixth or seventh generation rancher farmer in nebraska and he's been a real real important outspoken advocate for agriculture and animal ownership Mm -hmm. and i started an anonymous twitter account as a whistleblower against the aspca because at the time i was i just assumed i was going to get sued i assumed they would shut me down tie me up in court i mean they have billions of dollars at their disposal uh, these animal rights organizations combined uh, unlimited money and power the unlimited lobbying power they have in dc and every state house is mind-blowing your listeners nobody ever has any idea how much power
1: they have i want to uh, get to that part because I, th- i want to yeah but go ahead and go ahead so
0: yeah i i started <coughs> this twitter account and an organization called protect the harvest That was founded by Forrest Lucas right here in Indiana. Forrest Lucas of Lucas Oil. He founded an organization called Protect the Harvest. And they are all about exposing the real agenda of animal rights um, extremists and stuff. And protecting our right to own and use animals. And they saw that Twitter account in fact i probably tagged them in my comments i'm sure i did because i was looking for a platform i was looking for a way mainstream media won't touch this no they don't want anything to do with they want the feel good stories about animals uh recently and this is a great story i'm not saying that it's not but recently there was one that was all over all the national media they a dog was caught in a storm sewer and they cut the concrete, the road out, and they went in and cut all levels of roadway out and rescued this dog from the storm sewer. That's a great story. I'm not saying it's not. If that was my dog, you met one of my dogs this morning. If that was him, I would have done the same thing. I right. would have expected the fire department and the street department to come and help me get my dog out of the storm drain. But they'll touch those. They're they all over those feel-good stories. Yeah. But they won't say a word about the lies, the propaganda, the violations of your civil rights, the violations of your constitutional rights that are committed by these organizations, the threat that they pose to to our livelihood, <clears throat> to to feeding the masses, um, they won't touch any of that. So I was fortunate. Protect the Harvest started communicating with me, and then the word got to Trent. And Trent started communicating with me on direct messaging and stuff like that until I— Felt comfortable enough to talk to him on the phone. Right. So then we went to telephone conversations leading up to, he said, I want you on my show. I want you to come on my show. And I said, look, I'll do it. I'm, I'm honored that you would ask me to do it. And his audience is millions, you know, out West mainly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But he, um, so we, we agreed that I would go on his show, but we wouldn't mention the ASPCA because again the the legality i was that was our collectively our choice between the two of us so the first couple of interviews i think that i did with him i didn't i just said i worked for an animal rights organization a national animal rights organization then finally i was like you know what i'm i gotta say who they are i gotta Mm -hmm. say who they are so we just started saying who they were and um then I I was like you said I was started to get invitations to speak. Um, I spoke at a symposium in Denver, Colorado. Um, I've spoken all over the state of Indiana to different uh, dog breeders, dog breeding groups, and um, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania.
1: You were just and, in Pennsylvania last week. Yep, yep. Yep. I was over. Talked to you at, while you were on the road headed that way.
0: Yep. And <clears throat> recently, I was on a. a national tour called arise the arise usa tour trent invited me to join him Um, there were five tour buses on this thing different speakers covering different topics and and trent's main topics were agriculture related environment environmental uh, related and i joined him on that tour and and i had the opportunity to speak i i lost count how many states we i joined him in california and we went everywhere state to state state to state and ended up coming back and uh we had an event here in indiana in martinsville and um i jumped off the tour after that and just because i had too much going on here at home and the tour was winding down at that point it was Mm -hmm. headed out east and
1: winding down but um so so all the things you've seen you know since we this is a hunting podcast it's Mm -hmm. focused our main focus is hunting with hounds and the ethical pursuit of game while using hounds and legitimizing the hunting with hounds as a as a valid management tool uh one of the things that that i think is important to do is show a crossover of how the things that you have seen the things that you have um witnessed how can that be helpful to my audience? You know, what kind of, if you, you've gone around and you've talked to the agriculture world, what do you have to say to the hunting world mm-hmm. as it pertains to the animal rights movement?
0: The same thing that I would say to the, the um, agriculture world. And a lot of, a lot of your um, listeners on your podcast are crossovers they're, they're going to be raising, they're raising animals too, because most of them are rural people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from anyone that's, that lives in the city that hunts with hounds. I mean, they're, um, are,
3: are, are, are. but
0: most, most are rural. So you, your yeah. audience is they're raising animals too. They're raising livestock. Mm-hmm. They may have hogs, cattle, uh, chickens, whatever. Um, so it's, it is a very interesting, unique audience. But what I'll, I'll say is the same thing I say to the other people I've spoken to. You have to be involved in your community. And when I say involved, and this is the big thing. This is the big thing, Chris. We all like to talk about these things. We all like to hear about these things. People like to have a voice. They, I get Wonderful receptions when I speak because people I'm saying the things that people want to say at a level where they they don't have the time or the knowledge or whatever to do it or Or the experience experience or the willingness Mm -hmm. to do it. Um, First and foremost, your county sheriff. You need to know who he is. You need to take time to introduce yourself to him and you need to ask some very direct questions. You need to ask him, have any of your officers been trained by, law enfor- or by animal rights organizations? That's a big question that needs to be asked.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Unfortunately, the National Sheriff's Association is in bed with these organizations in a big way. And I would like to say it's just because of ignorance, but we can't say that because these aren't stupid people right these the 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 leaders of the national sheriff's association are 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 intelligent lifelong law enforcement guys that have seen just about everything you can see mm-hmm. but they they've made a choice to be involved in these organizations with these organizations. the Humane society of the United states has has a training division that all they do is they hire current and former law enforcement officers. To go all over the country training law enforcement in how to investigate animal cruelty. Okay. Now, on the surface, people would be like, "Well, that's great. That's a wonderful thing because they're not charging. It's not costing the sheriff's department anything. They're all, this is free training." Mm-hmm. But when you look at their big end goal, their main goal is to stop all animal ownership, and and. You know, I've had people say, oh, come on now, John, that's extreme. You, they That can't be. They can't possibly want. Right. Yes, they do. They either want to stop animal ownership or so heavily regulate it, tie it up in, in so many state, federal, and local regulations that you just throw up your hands and walk away from it. Say, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to raise these dogs anymore because... Now there's a county ordinance or a city ordinance that's pushing. Let me tell you, let me tell you, Chris, and let me stress this to your listeners. These animal rights people are not just sitting in D.C. and New York City. They are in your local meetings, and you're not.
1: Check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreed.com, and if you go to their website at checkout, and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tieouts, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off at checkout. Go to their website today at dogsartreed.com. You're That's not. huge. We 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 talk about this, and I call it. You got to take time to come off the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, I love I love being in the mountain. I love uh, on the mountain in the woods in this. You know, wherever I'm chasing my hounds, I love to be there. Yep. But I've got to be paying attention to what's going on around me and and being at, engaged at that county commissioner level so that they're not passing an unreasonable uh, local ordinance against my ability to own the the hounds that define my lifestyle, right? you know, of who I am and and what I love to do. And and when we don't take time to do that, we are just behind the eight ball. So did you ever see anything that came across your desk and you're like, you're going to call this animal cruelty? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that was pretty much blown out of proportion or – uh, that they tried to make a mountain out of a molehill? Or th- was ASPCA pretty strategic on on what they, what they chose to well, go after?
0: Well, they wanted to get involved. Anytime, if, if someone would call the ASPCA, for example, they call the New York number, and they want to report animal cruelty anywhere in the country, mm-hmm. Those those calls would first go through the director of investigations, the individual I'd mentioned earlier, and then she would... Send them out to an investigator to look into. Now, again, the ASPCA has no law enforcement authority. So, what was their tactic? Or how did they handle that?
1: This they, is the part we need to talk okay, about. Okay, this great. is getting to the meat. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so you, um, Miss Miss um, um, Do Gooder, Miss or Mister Do Gooder, driving down a county road and sees something that they think is unacceptable
1: mm-hmm. know,
0: livestock or whatever hounds Uh, yeah hounds running a fence line
1: or tied out after something
0: or tied out any you name it anything
1: you can make up up whatever you want they see they're not living in the house getting fat on on right nutter butters so the dog must be mistreated (laughs) it must be it must be
0: miserable Um, and they'll get on their phone i'm calling the aspca this is uh, this is ridiculous something needs to be done They'll get on the phone, call the New York number, and it'll filter down, and it say that it was in Indiana. It didn't have to be in Indiana. I was assigned to the northeast region of the country. I had my territory was anywhere north and east of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. New York, Pennsylvania, um, New Jersey, Maine, Massachusetts. You name it. In you know, northeast was my territory and my home state, Indiana. Um, and that changed. Over the course of the few years I was there where it expanded really basically to wherever, anywhere in the country, I had cases in California and everywhere. But um, so they would they would she would call me and she'd say, John, I got this call, this complaint about um, and I'm going to use one that was an actual scenario, upstate New York. She said, we got this call. These people drove by a pasture and there was a cow that looked like it was in distress what the hell does that mean? Exactly. In distress. It's another animal rights catchword. Um, There's so many of them that I'll share with your listeners as time goes on. Um, what More segments of whatever we do. But um, I want to educate your listeners on all of their tactics and their terminology. That's my lifelong goal now. Good. Is to spin this around and educate everyone on the way they operate. And drive them deeper and deeper into the darkness of their, what they're doing. They, and that's, that I, I'm, this is arrogant to say, and I don't, um, I have no way to back this up, but I, I do take a little bit of credit in the fact that the ASPCA has, their so-called investigations division has gone dark. Yeah. They're not out, their bios aren't out there anymore mm-hmm. because I'm talking about these people. They're, they're, um invest their um vp vice president of investigations is a retired fbi agent now you won't find that on their website retired fbi agent yeah um but anyway getting back to this complaint so i call the i say okay there's a cow in distress i call the complainant and i say hey i got your this information can you tell me what you saw and what happened well yeah there was this cow um, standing out by the road in this, you know, farm field, and she just looked like maybe she was uh,
1: had a belly ache.
0: Yeah, something was <laughs> something wasn't right. <laughs> something wasn't right, and she wasn't with the other cows, and and um, so I call the New York State Police, and it's always prefaced by, "Hi, my name's John Bowen, I'm." investigator with the ASPCA I'm a former law enforcement officer I always laid that you know how it is if you get a call from a former law enforcement officer and you're a former law enforcement officer there's immediate there's credibility credibility and camaraderie mm-hmm. brotherhood there that right that's why they hired me that's why they hire former law enforcement that's why they pay current law enforcement officers to go out and do their training so I call and I said yeah would you mind checking it out and the guy's like, yeah, absolutely. I know who that is. I know that location. I know that farmer, that mm-hmm. dairy farmer. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it's nothing, but I'll go check it for you. He went and checked, and that was a cow that was calving. Right. I mean, people don't, thank God that the calf wasn't, you know, halfway coming out. I mean, who, who knows what these people would have thought then. They would, you know, this this cow's dying. She's her her uterus is hanging out. I mean they would yeah. God only yeah. knows what they would say. They it's ignorance. We we another cow so is far.
1: trying to breach the back end of a, an adult <laughs> cow and, yeah. I mean, they have no clue and it goes back to that thing that we've talked about so many times John. We talked about it before we got started here. You know the the farther people get away from the farm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the more out of touch they become, the more uh, ignorant they become. And the more out of touch they come with what the natural world is, That's That's you it. know, they just simply cannot. And I think there's a strong sense of guilt in our American culture now because only 3% of our population has any sort of ties to agriculture. Other than what they, they're they're only tied to agriculture is picking up fresh produce out of the, out of the grocery aisle or, you know, finding some GMO-safe meat to buy out of the, mm-hmm. the case, and they don't even know what the heck that is. Right,
0: right. But that, that's so interesting that you—go ahead, go the, ahead. But they I want to they have this that. sense
1: of guilt because deep down inside, they are still wired to be stewards of the land. Mm-hmm. They're still wired to be um, into ham, animal husbandry. That's why you see all this passionate— care for a cat and a dog and all that stuff if they if we were back in the old days they would have a farm and they'd have chickens and they'd have all this stuff mm-hmm. their house sits behind a locked gate and and their whole neighborhood is taken up valuable wildlife habitat and deep down they know it so what do they do they put their energy into all this foolishness
0: mm-hmm. that's a, you're absolutely right so you're i can get fired up
1: too oh yeah <laughs>
0: yeah you get it you get it and there's so much i'm i'm so thankful that this door has opened
1: me too that me we too. can
0: communicate to a different audience here than what I've been communicating I've, I've wanted to share with the, with your audience with this type of an audience
1: and I don't and, think there's any other any other segment of hunting that can be more uh, we are definitely on the front lines of it to being impacted by the animal rights movement and that's why I thought it was so important that we got you on here because not only can you talk the talking points but you can give us insight in how to be prepared to face this or at least tell us what we're up against mm-hmm. um, and we're definitely not going to be able to cover it all in one podcast so i i'm looking forward to building this relationship and getting you in touch with network you with some organizations that need your expertise and uh, i think it's i think it's going to be huge but but i i do want to talk a little bit more, uh, about how, I think this is a one-on-one class, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is John Boland has credibility. You need to listen to what he's trying to tell you here. Mm-hmm. And we will build on this thing. Everything will, we'll get to the, you know, uh, con- protecting your constitutional rights and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. but, but, houndsmen need to understand what they're up against and who the enemy is we can't we can't face the enemy and we can't be effective if we don't know who they are right and you have been on the inside of that you're almost like um uh kevin costner and dances with wolves you know <laughs> you, you, i wish you know <laughs> beautiful
0: part of south dakota wow i've been yeah. i've been there that's
1: but beautiful. but just that part where he had been with the army and then he he was able to show the Sioux mm-hmm. you know the the dark parts of that mm-hmm. and and he said they hate me like no other because they think I'm a traitor right and, and right. you're
3: there yeah yeah you Absolutely. have the ability
1: to be that guy
0: the the animal rights community despises me they mm-hmm. despise me they don't want I I went into a local uh, when I was talking about they're they're at your local meetings I was in Northern Indiana at a, um, zoning meeting and I was invited there by, um, Craig Curry from protect the harvest and he joined me and they didn't know who we were. Nobody there knew knew who we were, but the animal rights people that were there that were pushing for a change in this ordinance and this, I I don't even remember the details of the ordinance, but it, it was going to affect animal owners in this small community. They were pushing, and they, they thought that they were really had some wind behind what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I stood up and introduced myself and testified at this meeting about the animal rights agenda and, and who I was, my background. And, and these people, you, you could have heard a pin drop. Those animal rights people, they, they went out of there with their tails between their legs. <clears throat> and I'm only telling you that because they didn't expect it. They didn't expect any kind of fight. They're so used to pushing their agenda through, ramrodding their agenda through Mm -hmm. at every level without resistance that when they do meet resistance, they don't know how to handle that. They're not used to that.
1: Well, I think part of the reason why they've been successful is because they have got their talking points down very well. mm -hmm. And the reason we produce podcasts like this for our listeners is so that they can start to develop the narrative that they need when they go to that that meeting but um
0: let me tell you something on on a and uh, let me tell let me speak directly to your listeners right now we love i'm including myself with your listeners because i you've seen my setup here at my house and you've seen um you know me initially what your first impression is of me is i want to be on my little piece of the world and i want to be left alone i want to be self-sufficient right and and i'm i'm I was raised that way. It doesn't mean that I have any kind of ill will toward anyone else that chooses any other lifestyle. You want to go to the grocery store and get your stuff and not have any idea where it comes from. That's your life. Do it. If you're a vegan and you want to live on carrots and mushrooms, that's your life. Do it. But don't force it on me. Don't force your ways and your beliefs on me and, and get nasty about it. What I'm going to say right now to your listeners is... And I don't know where that little rant even fits into what I'm getting ready to say. But I'm, I tend to do that because I am passionate about this. I get fired up about it. Mm-hmm. It all boils down to your constitutional rights. It all boils down to, by God, you have a right. You have a right in a free country to own animals. You have a right to own hunting hounds and to put your time and effort into those hounds, into, into getting them exactly where you want them, how you want them, over generations. Those traits that you want to keep and the traits you, do, you, you don't want. Um, to go out and enjoy yourself in the woods hunting um, whatever it is you want to do that's the american way we're free people here Mm -hmm. these animal rights extremists and i have to differentiate sometimes animal rights extremism and animal animal uh, welfare organizations because there are some great animal welfare organizations and i want to say this very quickly and get back to my point there are 43,000 animal-related nonprofit organizations in the United States of America. 43,000. So if you think animals aren't important to the people of this country, then all you have to do is look at that. Now, those animal organizations are not necessarily one or the other. I mean, you're talking about the pork producers association, sure. the the beef cattle, the eggs, dairy, um hunting. Right. You know, AKC different. There <clears throat> I'm talking about 43,000 total. Um over 43,000. And and I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but it's a multi-billion with a B, multi-billion dollar in- industry. Mm-hmm. These nonprofit organizations focused on animals in one way or another. I said that, you know, my, my borderline hermit lifestyle that I live and my self-sufficient lifestyle, I said that for a point. The animal rights groups are counting on that. They're counting on you, you houndsmen, you hunters, you fishermen, you trappers. They're counting on you to stay in your own little piece of the world and keep your mouth shut. They're counting on you to live by those old-fashioned standards and values of you mind your own business. Mm -hmm. let your neighbor do him and you do you you mind your own business they're not bothering me they're not bothering me i've had hounds my dad had hounds my grandpa had hounds and we've never been bothered we're we're respected in our community that's the key folks that's the key just because you have history long history in what you're doing just because historically the country and your state and your community has supported what you're doing doesn't mean that you're safe. I'm here to sound the alarm. I'm here to sound the alarm. You may be the last people that these animal rights people go after. You may, you may be, but I can guarantee you, you are on their radar. You are there. You are on their radar. Mm -hmm. And if they can villainize you, they're going to villainize you. They're going to destroy you. Mm hmm. But what they would prefer to do is sneak into your meetings where you never go. There's there's people listening on this podcast right now. There's there's a vast majority of this audience wouldn't even know where to go for a zoning meeting. They'd have to look it up. They'd have to call somebody and ask them, where are where the zoning meetings? Where's the county council meetings? Where's the county commissioner meetings? What's my sheriff's name? What are the deputies' names? They don't know
1: animal rights activists know that animal rights
0: activists know it they've got databases full of this information they update it on a regular basis they know exactly where they are exactly where the meetings are they know they know in dc at the federal level when any kind of bill is being um, put forth that's that's agriculture or animal related because they're the lobbyist machine behind it Mm -hmm. they're the ones that go and get your your left-wing uh senators and and congressmen to sponsor these bills they're the driving force behind it yeah um and not just left wingers there's a lot of uh, republicans there's a lot of rhinos out there that are that are eroding the rights of animal ownership right and because they want to get along with these people it's a feel good thing oh we we passed a new animal bill in the state um it's going to
1: protect it plays well Plays yeah, well in the yeah, media. that's great media. You can spin it's off great. of that, and it's great. And yeah, and, and you know, so man, that is so powerful. That's a powerful message right there. The animal rights activists, and we've tried to stress this so many times on this show, that they are well organized, they are well funded, and they have done the homework. And and you said they may not come after us, but hound hunting by far is the easiest mark. It's the low hanging fruit on the tree, and they will never be satisfied with just getting that. And that's what this is what I want to say to anybody out there that's listening to this podcast that may never own, has never owned a hound, or has no desire to own a hound. If you're a deer hunter, if you're a turkey hunter, if you're a, a fisherman then you need to wake up to this. Mm-hmm. You have got to wake up. And, and, John, there's nobody that can bring this message to us at the level that you can with your experience and, and the things that you've done. And I know you've been slow to – you've been worried about bragging on yourself, but you've got the experience. You've got the expertise. You've got the ability to deliver that message. And we're, I'm going to use you like a borrowed mule, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I mean
0: – There's got to be a purpose. Um You know, like I was telling you about the conversation I had with my son yesterday. There's got to be a purpose for where I am now. The, I, I, I'm, I started out, you know, as a deputy sheriff and, and went up through the ranks and, and it took a turn into this animal rights thing. I never saw it coming. Um, but thank God, my, the way that I was raised, um, And the way that I was trained in law enforcement is what you say, what you put on paper and what you speak publicly is, is, is record. And it's Mm going to, it's either going to, the truth is going to help others. But if you lie, if, if I was sitting here talking about a subject that I had just read about, I have no credibility. It'd be a waste of your time and your listeners. time. But. This is where I'm at. This is where it's led to. Every time I speak, I'm standing on a stage. The first thing I say is, let me tell you how I got to stand behind this podium. Right. I have to tell you how I ended up here. Right. Um, and that's what I would say to your listeners. I, it's a wake-up call. I quote, and, and from my law enforcement experience, this is something that we didn't talk about on the podcast. You and I talked about it previously. We haven't talked about during this recording, but part of my experience in law enforcement was my entire career. I was in training. Also, mm-hmm. I trained law enforcement officers in close quarter combat. I trained, and I'm not a badass. I there's, there's a bunch of people out here whip my ass in a heartbeat. <laughs> but I, I trained close quarter combat. I trained what we called physical tactics, officers and physical tactics. I was a field training officer for uh, everything related to law enforcement. I train SWAT teams in tactical knife, um, and I use. Um, there's two two authors, two two books or, or authors that I always go back to, and it's so relevant.
1: John Grossman.
0: <laughs> you got it, you got it, Grossman, and one that goes way way back. The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu. Art yep. of War.
1: Yep. I've referred to the Art of War as, you know, animal rights activists and the organizers. They've read mm-hmm. the Art of War. Yeah. They know what it is. That's and if right. you look at it, you can see that they implement those types of tactics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's another one that they use regularly, too. It's the um, some Rules of Radicals or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. By you,
1: Saul Alinsky. Yeah.
0: Saul Alinsky. Yep. 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 Um, but the these people war- are not dumb people. No, they're, they're not. not. They're, well read. they're well read, highly educated for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, a lot of them have master's degrees, PhDs. Yeah, these are people that are. They've they've come up through the All right. uh, the indoctrination of, of. Do they
1: really care about animals, John? <laughs> I mean, do they or are they looking? Are they looking for a paycheck? Are they looking for the donation?
0: They're looking for that. It's almost like now I'm not going to say that they don't. I'm not going to do what they do. Mm-hmm. What they do is they'll lump in an entire industry into one big heap and say, we got to set fire to it. It's got to go.
2: Mm-hmm. They'll
0: do that. I'm not going to do that because that's not true. There are good people within the organizations. Um, usually at a local level is where your good people are. Your people that are not making any money whatsoever to be your humane I'm glad society. You does it.
1: Yeah. To be I your, wanted to go there.
0: Yeah. Your animal control people. These are good people at a local level. The big thing there, Chris – is these are people that are held accountable for their actions because they're dealing with people they're going to see that evening at Walmart.
1: Exactly.
0: They're, they're dealing with people that they grew up with in a community. They're, they're, they're held accountable for their actions. These organizations that come into your town from, from D.C. and New York City with their big three-ring circus, they come in and they, they take away animals, they seize animals, and they go away and then they get on tv and they ask for donations and mm-hmm. and it it takes money out of your community it takes it leaves a, a sense of um people feel like they've been violated the entire community feels like they've been violated when these people come in yeah um it, it's it's terrifying for for people that are in the animal industry
1: so let me ask you this <clears throat> uh we're, we're gonna have to wrap it up here but mm-hmm. uh we got a lot more to talk about, John, mm-hmm. but I just want to cover a couple things before we do. Uh, if someone from an animal rights organization pulls in my driveway, do they have any legal authority or right? Do I have any obligation to let them come and inspect my property?
0: There's so many different layers and elements to this animal rights thing. You, mm-hmm. you We have, you know, you're talking... USDA. USDA has inspectors. If you're a licensed breeder, if you're a licensed individual, licensed for any kind of animal activity through the federal government or through the state or through your county, if your county requires certain licenses, um, you know, just a simple dog license, but that would fall in a different category, obviously. But there are people that if you are a licensee, they have a right to come and inspect your operation
1: government does government and
0: these animal rights organizations but here's the big thing chris here's the dangerous thing and why that question to your sheriff is so important are are your deputies trained by these animal rights people you need to ask your animal control if your animal control is not under the umbrella of your sheriff if they're a separate entity they need to be asked the same questions are you trained by these organizations are you funded in any way Have they given you a grant? Mm -hmm. I call them bribes. It's not a grant. It's a bribe because there's strings attached. They expect you to do certain things with that money. um, Those are the questions that need to be asked. But to get back to your question, you have a right to stop anyone at your driveway, at the edge of your property, and demand that they identify themselves. If you're not comfortable with who that individual is, I don't care who they say they are. If they're not in a uniform, a law enforcement uniform with a badge, and you don't recognize them, stop them. Refuse them entry to your property. These people are slick. They're slick. Uh, yep. They – they. but they're, they're going to do their homework before they come to your place. They're not going to show up. They're going to have done their homework. They're going to have been following you in some way. It's one of the reasons that I'm off of all social media now is just because – um, that's one of the best things that that's one of their best tools is social media. The stuff that your houndsmen share on social media is the first thing they'll go look at. If they decide to put target on your back, that's the first thing they're going to look at.
1: Thank you for validating that. Mm -hmm. We've still got several houndsmen out there in different, different groups and pages and different things that will not heed that warning. And they do not understand it. But and they say things like, "They're going to come and get it anyway. We might as well share what we're doing, you know, or I'm not ashamed of what I do mm-hmm. Well, and they they act like that they're going to make some last stand at the Alamo mm-hmm. because they want to share videos of of things on social media and, mm-hmm. and And the problem with that is I'm proud of what I do. Mm-hmm. I take I, I am not ashamed of what I do. I produce a podcast. This thing puts a big target on me and my mm-hmm. social media, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm not worried about that. But I'm not going to intentionally do things that these animal extremists can take. They can over-sensationalize it, yep. take take it out of context, yep. play it at the next uh, national or natural resources commission meeting, or my local commissioners meeting, mm-hmm. to show how I'm a barbarian. That's and it, f- and feed the beast. That's
0: it. And w- I mentioned Sun Tzu intentionally because there's a quote about um, there's several good, obviously quotes by Sun Tzu, um, but one of them is is fighting from the high ground, and these animal rights extremists own the high ground. Mm-hmm. They own it right now anything we do now is reactive we we have not taken a proactive approach to go after these organizations to stop them and therefore we are way behind we are fighting an uphill battle and with the sun in our eyes yeah from low ground yeah. that's what we're doing and if if these individuals want to post these this stuff OK, look, guys, it's about bottom line is you're an attention whore. You know, let's just yeah. let's just say what it is. You don't care about your fellow houndsmen, And I can say this. Some of you may be offended by this statement. Some of the listeners may hate me for making this statement. They're, they're going to say, who the hell we is this talk guy? about the, We talk about the <laughs> truth. Yeah. We, who we who talk is about this guy truth. to tell me? But you stop and just do me a favor. Stop and think before you post something and ask yourself will could this impact the entire industry could this hurt my neighbors could this hurt my friends in yeah. the in the long run and if it can then just pull your finger back and don't hit send don't share it is this going to is this
1: going to benefit my hound hunting community or is this going to benefit me yep. yeah yeah am i going to get is, a bunch of likes re- who is this really for mm-hmm. is it for yep. me or is it for you know,
0: and if you really want to be a rebel in, in your cause and you really want to make a difference, then get your ass into those meetings, go to the meeting and be that representative that sits there and says, that's a lie. That's a lie. Let me tell you what we really represent. Because if you want to lose credibility, keep posting a bunch of stuff that just feeds that animal rights extremist ideology. You're helping them. You're helping them. Right. If you're, if you're posting stuff that, that, we all understand
1: this is what i've se- this is what I've seen John I've seen videos that i mean it's a well laid out video okay It shows the family together the kids the the ethical pursuit, the harvest of the game, and then the the family gathering for you know after after that Excuse and me. and what happens is the the animal rights extremists go and they peel all of the other stuff back. Mm-hmm. They pick and choose. They mm-hmm. cherry pick the part that serves their cause. Yep. And now we're showing how this, these small children are being indoctrinated yep. into the murder of wildlife. Yep, there you go. And you nailed it. It takes let's, the let's, context completely out of
0: it. Let's take that exact scenario into the agriculture world. These, these people are going into the 4-H fairs. This is their great time right now to collect evidence. Yeah, They go into the 4-H fairs, and they get photos of these kids selling their livestock in the ring, these kids hugging a cow by the neck and crying, mm-hmm. and they put it on their social media. They're vegan. Um, and again, I don't care what you eat. If you want to live on crickets and grasshoppers, more power to you. But these people are taking um, – they're what I call militant vegans. They take – photos like that and you just see them at the fair taking photos you think is it somebody in everybody's support? taking
1: photos yeah, we've everybody, all got a phone, we've all got a
0: camera they're sharing this on social media saying look what these kids are going through these poor children that are in these 4-h and ffa programs that they're being taught to murder they use the uh, the word murder they yeah. like to they like to use these anthropomorphism words that yes. that that makes a, an animal turn into a person. Right. And they've been doing that since the 70s with with cartoons, mm-hmm. you know, with Bambi and stuff like that. It's yeah. this indoctrination started when we were little kids, Chris. Right. Um they want they want every kid to see an animal as a person. So they let them t- they make them talk and they have them do human things and they mm-hmm. they drive cars and they, they that's a whole another rabbit hole, no pun intended, <laughs> no pun intended that we could go down, but um the they're using they're using our own industries against us to push their narrative. Yeah. So they they're saying they're they're saying that these kids are being taught to murder these animals and that the, these kids are going to be mentally disturbed exactly. for the there rest of their life. Yeah. And take that just the agriculture community now. See, I'm getting fired up now because you, if you take that and for your listeners, please listen to me. They're doing that in the agriculture community. We all know the process of that cow, that hog, that it gets sold at auction. Some of them may go and live, but the most of them are going straight to slaughter. Right. And it's going to fill the freezers, and you're going to sit around Sunday, and you're going to have a nice family dinner based on that. You're going to smoke
3: they, it in your smoker. Yeah
0: that that meat ought to be getting pretty good shape about now. <laughs> um, these these kids are crying because they understand the work. That went into that, and the connection of, you can call it love if you want to, but a kid, the endearment, the respect, it's the respect.
1: It's a mutual respect. A
0: mutual respect. Of course, if you're spending every day for a year or six months with that animal, you get to know that animal's personality, and that animal gets to know you. That animal becomes dependent on you. But then when, you, when it reaches the end of its life cycle and its purpose on this planet, that kid is coming out of that situation with a real understanding of where his food comes from, where her food comes from, and the hard work yeah. and the, 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 the pulling of your heartstrings that goes with that. I've never met a farmer in my life that took any kind of pleasure in doing anything that caused injury or pain to an animal, right. animal husbandry does cause cause pain.
1: Man, it, this is a whole. They, <laughs> I'm telling you. But here, so, let, let me get back. Yeah.
0: And I, I don't mean to interrupt you. It's your it's your show, and I'm you I'm, get the message. I'm monopolizing this whole thing.
1: Um, I was just going to validate take, what you said.
0: Take that, you're, you guys listening to this podcast. Take what I just said about the animal agriculture industry. And magnify it now, because not you're not raising an animal. You're not spending every day raising an animal that's going to go to auction and be slaughtered. You're chasing that animal with a hound for the purpose of harvesting that animal. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we call it harvesting because that's the politically correct way to say it. That's the nice way to say it. Why do we say that? Why do we say those because kind of? Because ra- yeah, we've been conditioned to say it. Yeah, we've been conditioned to say it. We're afraid of what the animal rights people may say. But the bottom line is,
1: we're going to kill it.
0: We're going to kill it, and and if 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 it's depending on what kind of hunt it is, that hound may kill it, or a pack of hounds may kill it. And we we we've changed our terminology. We've changed our way of communicating because we're afraid of these animal rights people. And by God, we should be. We should be afraid of them because i I
1: would just i would say one thing about you know the the killing part Mm -hmm. you know the the unique thing about hunting with hounds is the vast majority of the time there is no other form of hunting out there Mm -hmm. where when you tree when when you when you put enough pressure on a black bear to run him up a tree Mm -hmm. you have all the time in the world normally to stand there and evaluate right whether that's a specimen that should be taken out of the great point population mm-hmm. should it be taken for wildlife management purposes i've seen bears taken because they're at the end of their life cycle mm-hmm. and hunters have hearts you know you and, and they they yeah. see that animal and it's like man i don't want to use my tag on this this animal but it's the right thing to do because mm-hmm. it's suffering you know there is no glorious death in nature mm-hmm. Every, everything either starves to death gets hit on the road but but the little, the little bambies aren't gathering around grandpa's bed to see him off you know or they they're, they're di- they die of predation you know mm-hmm. there's no glorious right but animal hunters are connected with that in a way that an animal rights activist never will be they and
0: have no desire to learn the truth they absolutely None. don't
1: and and I've seen I've seen the houndsman wade into ferocious Bay up fights where a small, uh, you know, uh, an animal is caught and putting themselves in danger for both their life of their hounds and also for the well-being of that animal. Mm -hmm. So anybody that tries to tell me that it's all about, you know, hunters care more about wildlife than an animal rights activist. We've dedicated our lives to it. We've dedicated money to it, time, everything. You can't tell me anything any different.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 yep. percent. Um, you and I, I think I mentioned this to you on one of our telephone conversations, but I. About the same time, i well, it was really exactly the same time I was getting into law enforcement, I was ready to get out and live on my own at, you know, after high school. And I saw an advertisement um, in the local newspaper it said live rent free. For care of foxhounds and horses oh yeah and I thought, man that sounds cool I can do that yeah and I called the guy and I went out and met him out on in, uh, in Jefferson Township here in Morgan County I met the guy and he said he said, well, here's the place he said, you can live here for free He said, you got to take care of my foxhounds and my horses. you got to feed them and stuff like that And he said, can you ride? And I said, yeah, I've been riding horses and mules all my life mm-hmm. and he said, but he said we ride English. He said, you're probably used to Western. I said, yeah. And, you know, I'm 19 years old. I, I didn't know. You what, can do anything. I didn't know what, yeah. And I, <laughs> and I was getting into law enforcement. So, you know, there's that, you know, bravado, but I, I didn't know the difference. But anyway, my point, that guy ended up, he had that fox hunt for 10 years and he ended up winning all kinds of awards in Pennsylvania and Maryland for his hounds in, in the hound shows. Yeah. Um, There's nothing more thrilling to me. There's no more of an adrenaline rush, even in high-speed pursuits. Even when you're getting ready to kick down a door and get that fugitive. Yeah. The adrenaline rush that came from riding a thoroughbred horse through the woods, the hills and hollers of Morgan County, Indiana, chasing 50 foxhounds through the woods. Yeah. Yeah and they're on the trail of a fox i mean that's that's a thrill that's <laughs> a thrill and and uh his hounds he had a, he had a, a hound from some of your listeners i'm sure would recognize some of these but hit a lot of his hounds ended up being what was called a Penn meridale breed mm-hmm. it was a breed that was pennsylvania maryland and delaware Penn meridales and they were a big black and tan foxhound but he had um he had gone to Scotland and got a, a couple of dogs, a couple of studs there. Um, they were scarteen. They were called scarteen foxhounds, and they were they looked like a bloodhound. They were massive. Yeah. And he bred those into his penmeridels.
3: Hmm. And
0: um, by the time he had run that 10-year course of that fox, and the only reason he, he closed it up really was because he had had some health issues. But he, um, he had really establish a name for himself yeah in the fox hunting community but of course that was a different you're you're talking about the red coats and the horns and you're riding right. like in england you know scotland you're riding and at first when i first saw that host set up when they had their first hunt and i was a young a young kid there country boy seeing that i it was laughable to me oh, what this looks goofy Yeah, oh, these guys <laughs> in these red coats and blowing these horns and it was goofy yeah. I just thought it was the strangest thing, and I swore I'd never put on those tight riding <laughs> pants. And man, I did. Yeah. He told me. He said. He said it's like a football uniform. He said you wouldn't go play football without putting on the uniform. He said this is the uniform, and this is there's reasons why we dress this way and what we do. And I'll tell you, as goofy as it looks, some of those guys could ride a horse, man. Yeah. I mean, and when you're chasing that many hounds and hearing that. That deep beller, that beller, that, that, oh, oh yeah. of those foxhounds magnified by 50 or 60 in a pack. Right. Flowing like one creature, one unit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That strike hound out front. I mean, that was his baby, that strike hound. Yeah. He, that was, that was the guy you could trust. He would never run a deer. Right supposedly would never run it <laughs> that's what they all say <laughs> <You know? laughs> but anyway that i wanted to add that little bit here at the end of this yeah. because it um that was a really important time to me and and i was the kennelsman for for almost 10 years I, wow. I tended all those hounds um he'll claim today if you talk to him that the owner he'll claim i didn't do a very good job picking up the the out of the yard <laughs> i, I kind of skimmed over that
1: but <laughs> hit it with a mower scatter yeah, that's what i yeah. do <laughs> uh well john uh man i'll tell you what this has been a great conversation and and uh i definitely want to do some more we just scratched the surface we we did i think we can we did we i think you have so much to share for our audience because there's a lot of assumptions out there about what the animal rights movement is Mm -hmm. and how they operate. But I think you offer a level of experience to help people be prepared, much like, you know, your, your physical tactics, your ground fighting training, other law enforcement officers. You know, this, this needs to be building block stuff Mm -hmm. where people are protected. It's like teaching a self-defense class only, we can build on this i think yeah. i think it's yeah. gonna be great and i can't believe you only live two hours from me <laughs> i can't either you, know? you never know
0: yeah when you called me i thought because you said <clears throat> you got my information from chip i just assumed you were out in pennsylvania somewhere but yeah it's always great to, and and like you said i mean we could go anywhere in our conversation because we do have so much in common
1: right right and yeah. i know we've ran into each other I'm sure. Either at the academy, you know, because I was yeah. an instructor at the academy, and you know, just different trainings and mm-hmm. things you go through. Read interrogation schools, and yep. I mean everything. So. I'm sure we have. Yeah,
0: yeah. You, you conservation officers were always kind of an elite group, a uh, set of, uh, above everybody else, though.
1: Did From we give you? Th- did we give you that impression? Oh yeah,
0: you bunch of arrogant guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> every, every right to be. <laughs> uh. No, you. I like I told you, uh, Dave Reese was. Kind of like a mentor to me. He was he was the guy, man. He was a conservation officer here from Morgan County when I started as a young deputy. And what a great guy. Great guy. Smart. Dave always I always felt like Dave was so much more intelligent than the rest of us cops.
1: He and always it, thought he was. Well, yeah. Could be. Dave was sharp. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Dave yeah. was one of the guys. Same with me. I always paid attention to what, yeah. what Dave had to say and how he conducted himself. Mm-hmm. And... Approach problems,
0: and that also goes back to the way we were raised too—to respect mm-hmm. our elders, to respect those that have been there and done that, mm-hmm. um, until they do something to lose that respect. But otherwise, um, yeah, yep,
1: yeah. yep. Well, I'll tell you what—I um, think we'll just wrap this this segment up, All and right. uh, after we're off off the podcast here, we'll start talk uh, after I push the stop button we'll talk about our plan for the future all right uh, sounds good we close them out at the same way every time and uh you're gonna have to go way back to those fox hunting days and following those big what were they called pen mardells pen meridell
0: yep. it's, it's pennsylvania maryland and delaware yeah. it was a breed that was established yeah. out there
1: well um, we have a we have a saying at the end of these mm-hmm. it's, you follow your hounds and i'll follow mine there
0: you go